Well, um, you know, you were such a hit <laughs> in our last conversation um, that I wanted to follow up with you to talk a little bit more about JFK, um, maybe Martin Luther King, if you are interested, if we have time. Um, but I guess, you know, this seems to be the topical question right now. Uh, you know, these kind of never ending questions, <laughs> um, you know, around, around this mysterious death and per our conversation last time, where we're talking, you know, about this kind of arc of transformation humanity is undertaking at the moment. Uh, and, you know, like you and I discussing JFK Jr. potentially coming back uh, and what that means, you know, for humanity uh, at the end of all of this. So I wanted to have some time with you today, if we could, to, I guess, break down a bit about the death of JFK. Is that okay with you? For sure. It's been one of my main focuses for so many years, just uh, in a way, the way you describe it as well, not just to find out what happened that day, but also to find out the real truth, because it's in the truth that he real healing can occur. And as long as we have conspiracies that are hiding the truth, it's like a, it's like an infected wound that just uh, starts rotting from the inside. And it's, uh, it's really, really bad. So for generations to come and ourselves as well, I think this is of vital importance to find out what actually went down, because the forces that took him out and took out so many other beautiful individuals are still in play. This is this is it. Sorry, can you say that last part again? I wanted to make sure I didn't have that sound. As you say, the forces that take him out. The forces that took JFK out that bloody day in November 63 are still in action. They're still, they are the ones that we're facing now. It's the, the face of the beast, the bad breath of the beast. It is still there. So I, I find it very, very important because this is not just a historical day was JFK, JFK a good guy a bad guy was he murdered oh how sad that was it was a coup d'etat a global coup d'etat that started right there and has uh, continued to this very day that's such a great um, entry point for this because a lot of people listening might think oh this is just more conspiracy talk you know you're picking you're going down the JFK rabbit hole well, there's, yes, we are, but at, and at the same point uh, there, you know, this is the, that you just made, this is the starting point for where, you know, one could argue, you know, the state of the world was kind of taken over by this worldwide coup d'etat, this global siege, and one can't help but, you know, remember or see the similarities of what we're going through right now. Um, so, before we start, I, I just wanted to say, you know, when I was looking into this and just kind of, you know, reading up on JFK or what the official narrative is, was so interesting, right, is that Dallas has become this like cult vacations, you know, like everyone flocks to Dallas to do the trolley tours, to do, to go to the museums. I mean, it talk about preserving history or preserving a narrative. I mean, 
and and for the people that were there on the day and then have been you know spent living their whole lives in Dallas it's interesting they there's a sense of pride there and a sense of obligation to tell the story right of of what happened um, but you know, as you talk, I took some names down in some of the documentary, and you know, and I can, well, I'll, I'll ask you questions. But it just—it's very interesting. Like, uh, you know, are these people players too? Are these people that just want to have their piece in history? Were they somehow part of this global coup d'état without even knowing it? Um, but there is such a cult, you know, interest and a phenomena, and you know, there's—it's interesting. It's been in the news bits and pieces, you know, over the last, I guess you'd say four years, because Trump said that, you know, I guess it was at one point where he was going to unveil the classified documents of JFK. And like I told you in our last conversation, I went to this sheriff's event, you know, uh, this LA County Police Department event years back in this dinner where they talked about how the, un, you know, the classified documents were going to be coming out. And yet, I don't feel like we are any more certain of what happened that day um, and why there would be such a stigma around keeping these documents hidden if there wasn't something to hide. Um, and just, you know, when you think about how many people have been killed and sure, you know, JFK was very loved. My mom, my whole family, I mean, everybody loved JFK. That he was, you know, very similar to Princess Diana. We had this national, uh, you know, love for this man that when he was shot, it did shake up the country. So I guess I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what sparked your interest in the, in the beginning here and the state of the world at the time in 1963. Um, if you want to start with that. <laughs> JFK was the thing that got me started in 1980. That, and I got obsessed with that uh, thing because I, didn't, I couldn't understand it. That was it. I could not understand it because it, uh, uh, I, I've, I think I read a couple of hundred books, at least. I've seen all documentaries that are about it, I think, and so on. And what you're talking about in Dallas and around the world people are telling the story of what happened is that though the truth this is it because i've dedicated a major part of my life trying to find out what happened that day in dallas and also with martin luther king robert kennedy uh, many many of, of these other individuals that were standing up against this death machine and it's so so difficult to find the real truth because we're entering into the world of secret intelligence agencies, the mob, the CIA, the, the military industrial complex, the, all of it is in one big mix here. And that day in Dallas in 62, 63, sorry, they, there was a coup d'etat, but it was a brilliantly carried out military ambush that has made us confused to this very day. Because, I mean, I am as close to the truth as anyone, I would say, because uh, I, I've, I'm even a close friend to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's mistress, who was uh, employed by the CIA in 63, and who was part of uh, creating a bioweapon against uh, uh, Fidel Castro. Her name is Judith Barry Baker, fantastic person. Uh, I'm also I'm doing some name dropping here, but just to add some cred to my my words, because I do not take this lightly. I'm a friend of St. John Hunt, who is the son of E. Howard Hunt, 
uh, E. Howard Hunt was working for the CIA, one of the architects behind the JFK assassination, and later uh, one of the people that went down for the so-called Watergate uh, burglary, which was actually a coup d'etat, not a coup d'etat, but a coup to get rid of J uh, Richard Nixon. I'm also a, a close friend to the so-called babushka lady, Oliver uh, Beverly Oliver, who is standing right next to to uh, the motorcade when the shots were fired. And also, I know researchers all over the world uh, that have been dedicated to trying out, finding out the truth. And I've been a speaker three times in Dallas uh, at the JFK uh, assassination conference. So even though we are so many that have looked into this case, none of us agree upon who actually carried it out. I mean, I am the only one that have my point of view about who the shooters were. Other researchers that have dedicated their lives have found other names. So it's like super, super difficult. And the reason why it is difficult is because it was designed like that. It was a multi-layered conspiracy with different teams on site, totally compartmentalized by design on a need to know basis. So no one, no one or very, very, very few knew the bigger picture had the whole picture so it's this is why after more than 50 years we're still stumbling around trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle but the problem with this jigsaw puzzle is that the the pieces are square so you can fit them together in many different ways and it's only once you start fitting a bigger picture together that you can because it's with the picture side down as well so it's only when you get bigger parts of it put together that you can start turning it around and see what it was actually went down. This is the world of the CIA. Black is white, white is black. We're behind the mirror. It's enigmas inside labyrinths, inside uh, uh, smoke and mirrors. It is so difficult. So even the shooters that were that, there that day and fired shots did not know about the other shooters. Many of them did not. But it was called the big event because uh, so many, when you come to Dealey Plaza that day, it was packed with people from the business of assassinations. And that, I think, was a reason also that it would be pointing in all different directions to confuse whoever started looking into it. So it is a super complex uh, area to get into. But I'll be most happy to go into great detail with you because, in my opinion, I managed to identify more or less everyone that was there that day. Yeah, well, yes, let's let's do what we can in this call. Um, you know, when I was looking into this, they, they had different theories, you, you know, on your point of who who is actually responsible. You know, there was fingers pointing at the mob, the CIA, Castro, um, you know, given the state of the world at the time, was there a narrative that made I mean because they because I guess one of the things that just seemed so crazy was that this guy you know this unassuming <laughs> you know Oswald who could have who was so responsible for something so large um you know were we having tensions you know that were enough for Castro to strike back at the president was the mob really you know I guess that's what I wanted because there's and then the civil rights bill would JFK been the one to have past that i mean there's just there was so many things going on in the world you know for you i guess to open up the can of worms um to dissect what are your thoughts there you have to see what happened afterwards how was the 
how was it possible that media was being pushed in a certain direction? How, who could control that? Who can, can, could, 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 who could control the investigation? Who could control the commission that followed? Who could control uh, the cover-up of so many tracks? Who could control that so much of the evidence was uh, top secret and classified and put away forever and ever? Who could control the whole development around this whole thing? All of these things. And who, why is it still kept secret to this very day? The only reason things are kept secret is to protect somebody's butt. And the, the ones that we are covering up are who are trying to hide their tracks are the guilty parties. So to this very day, they're hiding. So could Fidel Castro arrange that? Could he go in and manipulate all of these things? Could he change the route of the motorcade? Could he get the bulletproof top of the limo off? Could he make sure that the limousine was put right up at, at the front of the uh, motorcade instead of in the middle where it should have been? Could he have pulled back all of the... Uh, secret service uh, um, agents so that they were in the car behind, not up on the sides of the car? Could he have pulled back all the motor uh, cycle cops on the side that should have been there? Could he have turned off the radio, the police radio at that moment? Could he have turned off the electricity system in the Daltex uh, school to, uh, book depository when that happened so that everything was locked down there? Could he have shut down the whole telecommunication uh, system for one hour over the whole of the US around the side of that so that the information flow could be controlled? No, no, Fidel Castro could not do it. The mob could not do it. The CIA on its own could not do it. The military industrial complex on its own could not do it. Who could do it? And over the years, you will see that what we're looking at is a uh, unholy coalition between very, very powerful sources that all had a massive interest in shutting this guy down. And we had JFK, who was, uh, he was not a popular guy when he was elected. It was the closest uh, election ever. He and, and Richard Nixon, it was only 100,000 votes that differed. So he came in really on a, a banana peel, you know, and also thanks to his... Uh, uh, corrupt dad, uh, John Kennedy, who was in bed with the mob. So through the help of Sam Giancarna, the, the Chicago mobster, he, they managed to get the, the votes that uh, was uh, missing. And that was the thing that got JFK into the White House. So he got in with the help of the mob. Not nice to hear, but that's the truth. So anyway, the mob had great interest. They were very happy that they had finally got a guy in there in the White House. And to start with, for the first few years, everything looked really good. Uh, he, JFK was a playboy. He was uh, really into glitter and glamour and beautiful women and the whole shebang. That was the whole thing with the Camelot myth that built up there and that people fell in love with. Suddenly Hollywood and politics got connected together. And it was in this whole scenario where the mob was counting on getting in there. They had people like Johnny Rosselli, who was sort of coordinating uh, Las Vegas, uh, New, um, Las Vegas, the White House, the mob, all of these things into one mix that looked really glittery and, and uh, fluffy on the outside, but behind the scenes, they corrupt.
And then it, I think it came to the point of the missile, Cuban Missile Crisis. That was the point where uh, Russia had sent some, uh, uh, some uh, vessels with missiles on it, and they were going towards Cuba. And the U.S. said, if you pass this uh, longitude, if you pass that line, we will push the button. We will start the, the Third World War, nuclear war, on you. Back off, back off. But by mistake, the ship uh, didn't hear the warning and, and crossed this line anyway. So the whole military-industrial complex was shouting at Kennedy, push the button, push the button, get the war going. And people that were in the room with Kennedy said that he was sitting there with tears in his eyes, just saying, I refuse to be the one that does this to the world. And I believe that it was at that point, he had sort of like a revelation almost, where he saw the level of madness behind the mindset of, of this whole, these individuals and this power structure, where he just felt, this is so fucked off, fucked up, you know, we have to stop this madness, this is, we're going to destroy the world. And at that point, this flamboyant playboy turned into this dedicated individual who said, I'm going to take them down. I am going to take them down. And at that point, he suddenly turned around and started like a war on the CIA. He said, I'm going to crush the CIA into a thousand pieces. Uh, he fired, I mean, holy sacred cows, like Alan Dulles, the director, the head of the CIA, Richard Bissell, other people like really also the brother of uh, the mayor of Dallas, uh, they were fired. I mean, that was unheard of, unheard of. He said, I'm going to withdraw out of Vietnam before 65. I'm going to, because the Vietnam War hadn't started on the American part. It was a French war. It was a war about drugs mainly. And so uh, the USA uh, hadn't really got in there. They had advisors in there, but the war hadn't really started. And, and Kennedy said, I'm going to pull out. I'm going to pull out, which was a massive blow to the drug empire, but also the whole military industrial complex who were making absolute billions on wars. So he, by him saying, we're going to pull out, it was like mayhem for them. So they hated Kennedy. Then he turned his younger brother, Robert Kennedy, against the mob, who at that point didn't uh, even exist officially. J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the head of the uh, FBI, uh, because uh, they had him by the balls, literally, he, they had some very, uh, the mob had him uh, under control because they had some very uh, exposing photos of him and his boyfriend, Clyde Tolson. Also, he was a, a, a cross-dresser and uh, homosexual. And so FBI had had uh, denied the existence of the mafia all, all the way up until then. I mean, it didn't exist according to him. But here suddenly JFK put Robert Kennedy to start a witch hunt of the mob, the mob that had helped JFK to power. So the mob got super pissed off, to say the least. You had Giancana in Chicago, you had Traficante in New York, you had Carlos Marcello down in, in Louisiana. That was just like, what the hell is going on here? It was I, our guy, we helped him, and now he's turned on us. So within one year, the, the number of verdicts went up, uh, verdicts against mob members went up 700% in, in one year. It was like unbelievable then jfk said 
I'm going to get the Federal Reserve, take the power back, take the, uh, the silver standard back and get the money into the hands of the people out of this illegal grip of this private organization, private crime organization to say that crime syndicate. I mean, the Federal Reserve is the head of the snake in many ways. Awful, awful, awful. He said, I'm going to pull out there as well. He also said, oh my, there, was so, there was so many different areas where he just said, I'm going to change things in a major way here. So a lot of people started hating him, to say the least. And a lot of people said, we need to shut him down before the next election. We need to take him out. And so up until then, there was a, during the Eisenhower administration in uh, 59 and 60, they had started coming up with the idea of why don't we create like a mobile unit of assassins that can be sent globally wherever we need them instead of us having to to uh, go on site practice you know train people locally to become assassins to take out whatever president in Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, wherever you know that we have to do the same thing over and over again and it takes months and months and we can't rely on them being good enough why don't we just create our own mobile unit that can be sent wherever, wherever we have a problem, uh, anywhere we want to stage a coup, stage a coup, or take out some uh, elected uh, president and replace with a puppet, puppet, who, wh whatever. How, why don't we create one unit that, like uh, Murder Incorporated, that can be used anywhere, and so. Um, Richard Nixon was given the task by Eisenhower. Richard Nixon was vice president at the time. He was given the task to get this created. And so uh, he, Richard Nixon, approached uh, three old CIA wolves. We had E. Howard Hunt. That, that was the guy I just mentioned before here. We had Ted, the blonde ghost, Shackley. Uh, we also had uh, David uh, Atlee Phillips, who was the who was the handler of Lee Harvey Oswald. He was also the handler of James Files, who, is, who will, you will see here in, in Dallas, was the shooter behind the picket fence. Anyway, so these three individuals, we're talking now in 59 and 60s, started recruiting mostly exiled Cubans in Miami because they had escaped from, from um, uh, Cuba. And they were the, the main people they, that hated, hated, Fidel Castro. And when uh, this group was created, the main target was Fidel Castro. So that was the reason that they focused on these people. So the, the ones they recruited were former people from the government, for, former security people, police, ex-military, ex-Air Force, uh, and so on. And there was about a group of 80 that went under the name of Operation 40. This is a very important group to, to become aware of, Operation 40 where these people were then sent down to the Everglades in, in Florida and being trained in jungle warfare. They were down in Guatemala being trained there, and they were outside Lake Pontchartrain, north of uh, uh, New Orleans, being trained in all every single way of murdering people, blowing things up, poisoning things up, extortion, blackmail, terror, blowing up airplanes, you name it whatever that was connected to death or blackmail or extortion or control, 
this was the gang. So you had a specific unit for the assassinations and then other people for organizing coups or blackmail, extortion, torture, all of these things. When other name of Operation 40. So we had these three. Then one key player that is extremely important to get to know about was a young man by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a CIA operative. He came from a very, very prominent family. Uh, Prescott Bush was his father, who was part of, uh, with the Dallas, Dallas brothers, uh, fundling the, the economic funds into the Hitler war machine. Prescott Bush, uh, father himself, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, grandfather, was the guy who, who manipulated the so-called Zimmerman telegram that got the USA into the First World War. Prescott Bush was part of funding Hitler to get the US into the Second World War. And here we have a young George Herbert Walker Bush, that's Bush Sr. And as an operative, the CIA operative, he was given the task to become the paymaster for Operation 40, to funnel the funds into this black op uh, of death. So George Bush uh, were very, very key in that group. And he, if you look at his career, his whole career, he kept some of these people from Operation 40 so close to him all the way through the Vietnam War, through even 9-11 through, I mean, so, so many of the, these horrible things that we've heard of, he is one. He, the Iran-Contra scandal was Felix Rodriguez. You had the assassination of uh, uh, Che Guevara down in Bolivia. You had many of the coups in South America. You had, uh, he was involved in the uh, alleged assassination of the Swedish prime minister, Olof Palme. He, he was, he, they're just all over the place, all over the place, blowing up, uh, what was his name uh, at Embassy Row in, in Washington? Uh, Orlando Letier. Letier was his name. Anyway, so, so Operation 40 was trained down there. And the whole idea was to aim it at Fidel Castro, get rid of Fidel Castro. Because one of the things that when Fidel Castro came in and took over Cuba, what he did was he threw out all of the casinos, all of these, uh, the mob, uh, it, I mean, it was a golden, it was a gold mine for the mobsters. And it was also, uh, Cuba was sort of like the last landing place when it came to drug import into the US. So they were, uh, they were landing there and then refueling whatever, and then flying in illegally into the US. So when Phil Castro came in and took over there, throughout the casinos, throughout the mob, throughout the everything that was connected to arms dealing and drugs and it was a major blow to them. So they hated Castro. They hated Castro. Anyway, there now more and more rumors are coming out that Castro was in this game as well, uh, CIA operative or whatever. I, I don't know. I've never really found out some what I see as real evidence, but I'm totally open to learn more all the time. So anyway, so at the same, is it okay if I go into great detail here? Because if, you, if I don't, then people won't understand. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I'm listening. Okay, so to understand what was going on also was that uh, at the very same time when they were trying to take out uh, Fidel Castro with his hit team, and they, they made multiple attempts on, on Castro's life, 
they they were also looking for a way to poison him or get some kind of cancer fast growing cancer into his body system and so uh, there was an, a doctor called Altan Oshner in New Orleans who had been part of starting the whole polio campaign vaccination thing all over uh, the US and into Europe and so on also what they had found out though was that in this polio vaccine there was an extremely extremely dangerous so-called virus called the w40 sv40 sorry sv40 a very very fast growing very efficient killer that was in this vaccine and even though uh, this was uh, this they found out before the whole vaccination campaign started in 60 and 61 and, and one nurse or one uh, person from the laboratories came out and said, my God, there are live viruses, there are monkey viruses in it that are cancer called. We have to stop it. We have to stop it. Altan Ochtner said, absolutely not. We're going we're gonna to go forward with it. This was like the big, big pharma vaccination industry that was just standing on standby, exactly like with the corona or swine flu, where there was just like, let's get the vaccine into millions of people the exact same scenario there but very early on and so altan oshner because this started this rumor came out there that uh, these were poisoned these vaccines uh, so he had a press conference where he took uh, two of his grandchildren he just said these vaccines are absolutely no problem whatsoever just look here and he injected both his grandkids a girl and a boy uh, I think the boy died within 48 hours and the girl had uh, very severe polio for the rest of her life. But anyway, even though that happened, they went ahead and injected hundreds of millions of Americans, Europeans, I have been as well, uh, people, even people in Russia. For years and years, they pumped this thing in that they knew were cancer causing. And this is uh, by many uh, researchers, uh, re uh, what they've come forward with is that the cancer, the, the cancer ep epidemic that exploded in 1980 and onwards in, pe in people that were totally healthy, non-smokers, all of these type of things, is caused by the SV40 uh, virus that was injected through the polio vaccine in the early 60s. I mean, mass murder on a global scale. So anyway... Why, when they discovered that this uh, very, very fast, very, very deadly virus or whatever you kind of want to call it, SV40, was in the vaccines, the CIA went in and said, oh, that's really handy, isn't it? Let's turn it into a weapon. So with the help of Altan Oshner in, in uh, New Orleans, they started a very secret project where they were refining a bioweapon that was supposed to go and be smuggled into Cuba and then somehow gotten into the body system of, um, of Fidel Castro. Because also one of the things they found was that this, whatever virus you want to call it, SV40, once it was in the body, at those, in those days, the only way you could cure cancer was through radiation. But this virus started, it just exploded when you put it under radiation. It just started growing like a maniac killing the victim so much faster so this would be the perfect thing if they could somehow get it into uh, Phil Castro on a cigar or injection or whatever once it was in his body 
the the doctors would say, oh my God, he's got cancer. We need to give him radiation. And then that would be the way to kill him. So the doctors would kill Fidel, Fidel without even knowing it. So they put a lot of effort into this. So in New Orleans, there was a series of laboratories under the uh, surveillance of a doctor called Mary, Dr. Mary Sherman. And in this operation, you had a lot of safe houses with laboratories in them. And it was here where people like Dave Ferry, Judith Ferry Baker, my friend, Lee Harvey Oswald, Clay Shaw, Jack Ruby were part of that whole thing. And so Lee Harvey Oswald at that time was a, a low key agent who had been stationed in Japan. He had been educated in Russia and all kinds. He was an operative. He was even sent into Russia. We was unheard of almost in those days, managed to get out with the help of the CIA and all of these things. <clears throat> and now he was in this operation. At that time, the reason he went down for this very famous murder was because his background with Russia and all of these things fitted in as a perfect patsy. So but this was not why he was sent to Russia. There was, it was just used afterwards when they were going through who are we gonna, who can we make out as the perfect Patsy that, so that people will believe this. And they found their own operative here in the form of Lee Harvey Oswald. But anyway, so Oswald's task in New Orleans was to uh, take uh, these, um, uh, what they did was they, they injected mice with, with uh, this virus. The, the virus started growing very fast in, in you know, like uh, lumps and big uh, cancer um, growth, stuff like that. So they took it, chopped it up, mixed it down, <laughs> injected it again, put radiation on it, injected it, chopped it up, and so on over and over again. And then it was sent around uh, among the, uh, between these safe houses or safe laboratories. There was also an, uh, a particle accelerator in in New Orleans, that was part of this whole thing also, to refine this extreme bioweapon to be used against Fidel Castro. And in those days, he was made out as being this absolute monster. So even Judith Barry Baker, who's a very soft and loving person, she was so dedicated into killing Fidel Castro because she just saw him as the devil. She was being recruited very young as well. She was only 7, 18, something like that. Eight, no, a little older when she was recruited. But she was recruited because she was on her own. She had managed in her uh, basement to create the fastest growing uh, cancer in the States. And once you find out how cancer grows, you can turn it around and use it as a uh, a healing of cancer, how to heal cancer once you understand it. So, so she approached the, the Altanochna, this doctor, and then the CIA started getting their eyes on her, recruited her without really knowing what, how, and then Lee Harvey Oswald was put there as her handler in New Orleans, so to just make sure that uh, she didn't do anything stupid or whatever. So, so this whole thing was going on in New Orleans. These key people like Jack Ruby, Lee Oswald, uh, Clay Shaw, Dave Ferry, um, Judith Ferry Baker, and so on, were in New Orleans in, in that operation before Dallas, this whole thing, about a year before, doing that operation, <clears throat> having no idea about uh, what was going to go down with Kennedy. I mean, Lee Oswald loved Kennedy, absolutely loved him. But what happened in New Orleans was that uh, when Lee was 
Judy's uh, uh, handler. She wasn't aware of it, him being her, his handler, her handler. But what happened was they fell in love and they had this beautiful, beautiful love affair. Both of them were married. So it was sort of like uh, outside marriage, but they were they had an incredible love affair to this very day. I mean, Judy Barry Baker is still deeply, deeply in love with, with Lee and is doing everything to clean his name and really show who, who he was. But anyway, so, so this was going down. And then when Kennedy suddenly turned around and started going against the military industrial complex, the CIA, the mob, all of these things, this canon murder incorporated that was aimed at Fidel Castro, this canon was then decided, let's turn it on JFK instead. We can deal with Castro afterwards. Now we need to stop, stop this son of a bitch before he does anything more stupid. We have to stop him. So they took the whole team, Operation 40, and turned towards uh, Kennedy instead. And then they regrouped people in New Orleans from that operation and took uh, regrouped, for instance, uh, uh, Lee Oswald down to Dallas, where Jack Ruby was already stationed. So these people, it is only when you see that that you will start to understand what, how do these people, how are they connected in the background? So anyway, what happened was that during this whole time when, when Kennedy started acting like this, there was this, nobody said it out loud. There were no meetings. There were no uh, you know, documents or things written or decision-making and signed and stuff like, we're going to kill Kennedy. It just started forming in the background, invisible as they are, where the real power behind it is always behind closed doors, behind closed doors, behind closed doors, behind closed doors, totally compartmentalized. So you cannot see what is actually going on. And here, this idea or plan started forming that we need to take him out. And so there were three different places they had, uh, they were thinking about. It was Miami, it was Chicago, and it was uh, down in Dallas. And the reason Dallas was because they had Cavill, the mayor of, uh, of Dallas, they had control over him because he was the brother of, of uh, one of the big generals or military guys that uh, Kennedy had just kicked out. Also, Dallas was a perfect place because it was down south and <clears throat> they had control there through uh, uh, John, Lyndon Johnson and also John Connolly. Who, so these key people were sort of, it was their home base where they could uh, control people in a different ways. So Giancana uh, was very much against uh, that it would happen in, in Chicago because that would be pointing too much towards him. And so they, they were plan thinking about doing it in Miami, but th that didn't work either. So they regrouped and the third, uh, the third one was Dallas. So they flew him down. Is it too much info? Do you have any questions or before we come to Dallas? No, I mean, I have, I have noting questions. I will, but I'm listening to you. So go ahead with Dallas and we'll ask okay. him. <laughs> okay, so what happened in Dallas was uh, very disturbing to say the least because what you will see is around Kennedy, 
suddenly all protection is being pulled away. This is the same way they've done it every single time. It's like they have this goat that is supposed that are going to be slaughtered and all protection is being taken away around it. So this or lamb that is being sacrificed is left totally on its own and then chopped to pieces. This is exactly what we see here. The Secret Service pulled back. There was no military presence at all in Dallas that is normally there. They're flown in days ahead, you know, checking the area, checking everything. All of that was missing. The people that were, that were uh, fans of uh, Kennedy in the Pentagon and other places were put on holiday. They were sent abroad. They were taken, taken out of the system, out of the equation so that they couldn't interfere. <clears throat> Also, once uh, they landed in Dallas, the uh, sort of the uh, bubble top on the, uh, the limo was taken away. So he was sitting right out in the open. And this is in, down in Texas that was known to not be very fond of Kennedy and a very violent place as well. Lots of guns and so on. So anyway, also, you can see at the airport how, how um, the Secret Service agents, there's some of them trying to jump up and stand on the on the car the limo which they always did and they were told no no back off back off back off <clears throat> also like i said before the position of the limo was way up front it was the second car in the whole motorcade which is totally unheard of it should be in the middle surrounded by uh, by other vehicles with secret service with protection also an ambulance very close the doctor very close so should anything happen also there would be ambulances placed on strategic positions along the motorcade so that uh, should anything happen there, there would be help as soon as possible but here we see the exact opposite these ambulances are uh, taken uh, moved out, <clears throat> police uh, protection is moved out, Secret Service moved out, the police uh, um, motorcycles pulled back, everything is pulled back, moved out, and so on. The, uh, also, the doctor that should always be very close to Kennedy, he was put in a car way back in the motorcade, and also all cameras around it, the press and so on, back, back, back. So he was up there in the front. And then once you started coming close to Dealey Plaza, there is, uh, if you know how, what Dallas looks like, we got, uh, uh, let me see here, Main Street is uh, down in the middle. Then you got uh, Houston Street that crosses the bottom of sort of uh, Dealey Plaza. Dealey Plaza is like a pyramid shape. <clears throat> it is actually a Freemasonic place where it was the first Freemasonic lodge ever in Houston was located right there. There's a big white obelisk as well, there, that uh, position that uh, where the building was. And <clears throat> uh, on the way there, right opposite uh, the Carousel Club where Jack Ruby uh, used to be uh, having his nightclub, you had the Adolphus Hotel. And I, my, I speculate now, but I believe that the Adolphus Hotel was where the headquarters of this assassination was located in the Adolphus Hotel. That was also this day, Sam Giancarno was there with uh, one of his uh, hitmen, Richard Kane. Uh, there was also other uh, people there. And one, when the motorcade 
started coming and passing the Adolphus uh, Hotel, what they did was one of the police officers on a motorbike, he, he uh, took the microphone and blocked it for the police radio so that suddenly it was jammed so that nobody could speak in. This is also how uh, we have a recording of the sound from the murder cage because he had blocked that microphone. Then we have uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was working in the uh, Texas School Book Depository where he was being given that job by key people in this whole operation as well. And so when you come to uh, the location, you come Main Street and then they turn right down Houston Street and then they turn a super, super sharp left uh, onto Elm Street where the whole motorcade just slowed down into like almost a standstill, which is against all security rules, absolutely all security rules, because that just puts him in a perfect position to be shot here. <clears throat> so that whole thing is against all rules that they would have that. But anyway, uh, you have very important buildings there. You have the uh, county building, and then on the other side, you have the so-called Daltex building. Then on the other side of Houston Street, Elm Street, is the school, Texas School Book Depository. And then you got this uh, train bridge, uh, the triple underpass that goes under, that goes over. So you have three different streets coming on. There's Commerce Street, Main Street, and uh, Elm Street goes in under that uh, bridge. So when you look at the the whole uh, how this whole uh, thing was set up, I would very strongly suggest that one shooter, absolutely not. Two shooters, absolutely not. When you look at how many shots were fired, how many uh, damage in damages to vehicles and uh, and uh, you know the whole shebang how to explain different injuries and all, also bullet wounds and also what people were seeing there we're looking at a completely different uh, story here I, I can go through step by step by step what I have been able to find out if that is true or not I don't know, but I can swear on my life that I've done everything I can to find the real truth. And as far as I know, this is it. So on the in the Daltex building, there were shooters before uh, in the county building as well. Who they were, I'm not totally sure. But in the Daltex building itself, there was on the second floor uh, near the fire escape, there was in one building there, there was uh, four people that was let in there. It was George Bush Sr. He was in there together with Johnny Rosselli, who was the coordinating um, guy between the mob, uh, Las Vegas, and uh, this hit team as well. He was part of Operation 40 as well. The shooter in there was a guy called Chucky Nicoletti, who was a hitman for Sam Giancarna in, in Chicago. And <clears throat> they all, they most of the time, there's one spotter, one shooter. That is a normal the way a normal hit team is set up. Sometimes it's a three-man team where they get a, a so-called breakdown guy as well that takes care, breakdowns the rifle and takes care of the uh, rifle while the whole team after the shooting just disappears in three different directions. But in this case, uh, his name was uh, the spotter. His name was Tony Izquierdo. Tony Izquierdo. There's even a, a sculpture of him in Miami today he these were the people in the Daltex building where some of the shots were fired then you have uh if we go to 
the next building or down on a street level, down on the street level on the corner of Houston and Elm Street, you can see there's one guy, there's, there's a car parked on the wrong side uh, in the sort of in the wrong lane going towards traffic on Houston Street on the corner of where the Texas School Book Depository is. It's a black guy. He's hanging onto a telephone pole looking uh, down where the shots are being fired. His name is David Sanchez Morales, part of Operation 40. He was later at the Ambassador Hotel when uh, uh, RFK was killed. He was also uh, with uh, Felix Rodriguez down in uh, in uh, Bolivia, taking out uh, um, Che Guevara on the on the orders of uh, George Bush Senior and others. David Morales was his guy. He was part of many many other assassinations, and. Uh, the guy, the car he was driving around in was um, was the car that was. Um, oh my God, my head is a little tired. Doesn't matter. It was Marina's friend's um, uh, car. Anyway, so we we go to the Daltex School Depository, the Daltex. Uh, no, sorry, the Texas School Book Depository, up on the first floor. We had, uh, there were three people being observed up there. One white guy with, with dark glasses or the very heavily rimmed glasses. Uh, his name was Richard Kane. He was the hitman for Sam Giancarna. Many people think that uh, the guy up there was Malcolm Wallace, the uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, private hitman, who, who's part of, he, I think he killed at least uh, eight people for Lyndon Johnson, including Lyndon's uh, sister, who was an alcoholic and who was uh, becoming a threat. This Lyndon Johnson, I mean, horrible person, horrible, horrible, very brutal guy. Uh, then... Then you had a black guy up there that was being observed by many uh, different people. His name was Arminio Diaz Garcia, also an assassin in, from Operation 40. He had uh, been part of uh, trying to take out uh, several uh, so-called dictators down in South America and was later assassinated in Mexico City. And then you had uh, Eladio Del Valle, who came from Cuban uh, intelligence escaped uh, when Phil took over, was one of the um, uh, main people that hated Fidel. He was also part of Operation 40. And he was the guy that if you see the JFK movie or other documentaries like this, you will see that uh, on the very same day as Dave Ferry was murdered, found dead, uh, also Eladio Del Valle was found dead in a car where he was shot and stabbed and hidden, uh, chopped in the head with an axe. You know, so these were the people in the Texas School Book Depository. Lee Oswald was down at the entrance, outside the entrance. You can see he's, he, the, he's even in some of the photos where you can see he's standing next to a guy called Billy Lovelady. But that was where he was. And I believe that his task was to make sure that nobody used the elevator. There was a, like this, uh, uh, what do you call it, like... Uh, cargo elevator lift going up to uh, through the whole building where the hit team was being sent up to they were up on the sixth floor where the shoot when the shooting occurred but then after the shooting had happened 
how did they get down there? Because there were people in the stairs. Nobody saw Lee Oswald. Nobody saw anyone else going out there. But people saw that there were three people running out on the backside of the Texas School Book Depository. One was picked up by David uh, Sanchez Morales uh, and took off going north on, on Houston. Uh, and one uh, with the with the dark glasses, he ran and was running around uh, Main Street, uh, sorry, Houston Street, and then down Main Street towards the Adolphus Hotel. That was Richard King. So how did they get out? And I, my, the way I see it is that these people were trained in jungle warfare. So for them to abseil inside the sh the elevator sh shaft from the sixth floor would be a piece of cake. That's how they got down. But that's is that is also why they cut the electricity in that building one minute before the shooting started, so that nobody could use it by mistake and and block it, or so that they couldn't get down. So my may I ask? Like, please do. So I mean, I, all right. This two part question. First, did you say um, Oswald was guarding the elevators? This is what I believe that he was doing, that his task was to make sure that nobody used it. He was part of that group. He knew that what they were going to do. And he tried to warn Kennedy several times. It was him who sent out the FBI telex trying to warn Kennedy, saying they're going to kill you in Dallas. Stop. Don't come here. Don't come here. He, according to Judith, he knew from the end, uh, I think it was on the uh, 29th of July, which is like five, six months before the, the hit went down, that they were going to hit uh, Kennedy in Dallas and that he was going to be used as Patsy. He's, he was strongly suspected that. But he decided to keep Ma uh, Marina, his wife, and they had two daughters, one of them newly born, and also to keep Judy, uh, Judith Barry Baker safe, that he, was, he had to stay. He could have escaped, but then people would know that he knew too much and they would go for his family and they would go maybe for duty as, as well. So he decided to stay and sacrifice his life. He knew that he was most probably was going to get killed and still he stayed trying to save Kennedy. So if you, in my book, Lee Oswald, that's a real hero for you. That, that is a real hero. And it's so tragic that he's being painted out as this uh, lone, crazy assessing because he was the exact opposite right and so you've just spent you know an incredible detail uh walking us through all the different players on the day was there any centralized body like you're over here at the school book building you're over here i mean or were there just uh, like you know different organized crime i mean did one pick up the scent that jfk was going to be taken out and then send you know another group send their best guys out i mean how no did... no no this is totally <laughs> organized this is all of it is controlled by radio you know so this is also why uh, i believe that the headquarters for the whole operation was at the adolphus hotel which is just like 100 yards from or 200 yards from uh, Dealey Plaza, where the whole thing, then you had observers, you had uh, E. Howard Hunt down in Dealey Plaza, you had different people, the coordinators, because there were different uh, shooting teams, I, I haven't gone through all of them by far. Um, so all of it was organized by through radio, and where it was like, 
red light, red light, everyone stand by, stand by. And then there was a green light given and boom, everybody started firing at the same time. But was this under some kind of umbrella, rogue mob government agency? Uh, what? Okay, what? so, so yes. the, the thing when you start looking at the mob and CAA, it's, it looks like it's different, like they're two different parts. But I tell you, they're so entangled into each other so that the CIA in the early 60s, they started using, and in the 50s as well, they stu started using the mob to do hits that they couldn't do because officially the CIA can only operate internationally, not nationally. That's the FBI's territory. But the, F the CIA had never respected that. So instead, if they wanted to do stuff back home, they used the mob to do the whatever, the killings, the... And so they were very, very uh, intertwined, these two organizations. And so it's like two sides of the same coin. And the FBI as well, with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, very, very much involved in all of these famous uh, assassinations, uh, like uh, Martin Luther King, JFK, Robert Kennedy. J. Edgar Hoover is all over the place when it comes to covering the whole thing up, covering the whole thing up, manipulate the evidence, point it in different directions, intimidate and scare and, and terminate people, FBI, 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 all over. And they still do this to this very day. So who, who was behind it? It's very, very hard to know to come up with the exact details because it's so so in the fog but it was a coalition between the CIA the secret service was involved as well the Dallas police was involved as well but just in the operation itself the Texas uh, oil barons uh, the military industrial complex the mob as well um, so all of them just like when they killed uh, Julius Caesar Everybody had to bring people uh, to dip their hands in blood so that it, no one could get out and point at the other one saying they did it because they would take themselves down as well. So the mob brought shooters, the CA brought shooters, Operation 40 was there. Uh, so it was a mix, mix, mix of the whole thing, coordinated through radio as a perfect military ambush. That was how it was carried out. So the shooters, I tell you, the shooters didn't know about each other either. They just knew, oh, my God, is he there? Is Frank Sturgis here as well? Whoa. Is that, they, nobody knew the bigger picture except the people in the background by design, because also they need to do it like that. Otherwise, they have, have possibilities of ma major, major blackmailing issues after the, the thing went down. You know, if people know the whole picture, they can also blackmail you. How did Oswald know then? How, was he tipped off? Or? No, he was in the middle of the whole thing because of this whole thing with gun running, Guy Bannister, the FBI, the CIA, all of that. I mean, the whole community was involved in so many different activities. And he started feeling, what the hell is going on? Because he was also being prepared as a patsy. What they did was that uh, he was being involved in different operations around the bioweapon thing with Castro. And then suddenly they started painting him very red, you know, like a commie, communist to prepare him to be the perfect patsy so that they could afterwards uh, have him 
doing radio interviews and he, there would be photos there would be footage of him giving out uh, leaflets and stuff like that so that the whole case would be so easy to close bam 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 like this oh he was a communist oh he was like this he hated it. so during that whole period um, judith Ferry baker has written several books about what happened during these months and how yeah, how the whole thing went down. One is called Me and Lee. Uh, the other one, there's a whole book about Dave Ferry, who was a close friend to both of them. And so, I mean, she has met all of them. Uh, this, this is so fascinating when, when sort of, when I sit down with Judith, it's like when she's talking about Jack and Clay and Dave mm -hmm. and so on, and that's actually Dave Ferry and uh, Jack Ruby and Lee Oswald, these sort of like historical individuals. And then you sit with her and it's just uh, talking about friends and what happened there. Wow. I mean, that is incredible. And, and to think that, you know, everybody showed up that day with a task. No, and no, then but it's, it's much, much bigger. This was prepared months and months and months and months ahead. Weapons was driven in. The whole shebang was being prepared. The area, all of it, the funding, the my god it's a massive operation massive it's it is the masterpiece when it comes to ambushes that was a high level high budget in absolute immaculate masterpiece of an ambush it's even being used i've heard by military snipers that the footage that we have never seen of the uh, of the assassination there were several different photographers there that was filming it they were doing that for educational uh, educational purposes for military snipers on how to show a real ambush the perfect ambush and so this has been copied many many times but anyway i want to continue because we if you leave if you leave the uh, Texas School Book Depository, then you go on the other side of the, the lawn, sort of in the middle. When you see <clears throat> there's uh, the motorcade turns around, comes in on Elm Street, and then right when it's right there by where Sapruda was standing up on a, on a concrete pillar filming, there's this uh, Freeman's, uh, Stemmons Freeway uh, sign. On the other side, if you look there at this, uh, on the Sapruda movie, look up in the right-hand corner, there's a guy in very light khaki-colored uh, uh, clothes. And what he's got on him, you can see afterwards, there's uh, still photos of him after the shooting when he crosses the street right in, the, in front of the, uh, the Texas School Book Depository. He's got a massive, big, brown, bulletproof vest. I mean, massive on him. Anyway, when you see uh, when the when the motorcade is coming close right before Kennedy gets his hands up in the air and, and goes towards his throat, this guy goes into a shooting stand with a small little gun in his hand and looks like he's firing something. And right after that, he just lets his hand drop down to the side. His name, Walter Tabinski. This is a guy most people have never heard about. That is the guy, uh, if you see the photos where there were photos taken of somebody who said he was Oswald down in Mexico City. And when he came out there, uh, the CIA took photos of him that had uh, placed on the surveillance. His name is Walter Tabinski. He is a key player in the cleaning up of hundreds of uh, people afterwards in the whole area. Anyone that couldn't be trusted or needed to be taken care of. Him and his cousin, Clyde Forshaw, who was also one of the other shooters, uh, 
was there. So Clark, according to Walt Sabinski himself, he's been bragging to a person that I've been in touch with for years. His job, he had a tranquilizer pistol where his job was to fire it, hit uh, Kennedy in the throat of, or on the, in the front of the body. And that poison would be so strong that he couldn't move meaning that he couldn't get out. He couldn't throw himself down at the floor of the limo and get out of the way for these shots. So I believe that this tiny little hole that he had in the uh, front of his throat comes from that, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, fine caliber gun that he had, a bullet that just entered into his throat. That's when he throws up his hands towards his throat because Many people have said that the, that bullet hole came from uh, a gun that was fired in front of the limo and that the bullet went through the, the windshield of the, the limo and then hit him in the car. And they have measured this whole thing, you know, pointing out there was a hole in the, in the window and that was where it came from. But the thing was the, the windshield was angled and we've done different tests. And when you shoot at an angle, window like that, it changes the direction of the bullet. It's, it uh, changes and it sl goes slightly downwards, which doesn't make any sense with the bullet in the throat. But when you see this guy and you look at the Sapruda movie, it's a, there's only like eight feet in between them when he just pulls the gun up, boom, fires right in the throat. Kennedy's arms goes up like this. He's like, oh, and that's when the other uh, people start firing. There's also, because you have to have, if there's multiple shooters, they had to be shoot at the same time since this was going to be blamed at one person. So they couldn't have sh shots going on all over the place, like boom, 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 like that, because then people standing there would be like, holy crap, there must be a whole army here. So they had to do it so that everything would be like within a few seconds and it could be blamed on echo or whatever, you know, so that people know one shooter, that window, that's it. So anyway, they had even painted uh, on the curb of uh, that day it was painted with yellow. It was according to people that were involved in this operation that was called the big event. They, they called that the death zone. So they had painted so that everybody could see don't shoot anywhere else but here. They even had the so-called umbrella man, who was another part. His name, real name is Roy Hargraves. He, is, uh, he was also part of Operation 40. And his task was, even though it was a sunny day, he, his task was to stand with an umbrella, put the umbrella up so that the different teams could see the cross point of the fire. So that here is it. When you pass, when the limo passes this point, boom, fire. So that's the, the task of this uh, so-called umbrella man. And the guy in front of him, his name was Felipe Vidal Santiago. His, he's the guy who steps out almost in front of the limo to wave, but also slow it down. He was later, uh, his name, he went under the name of Charles Morgan, and he was later part of many other assassinations globally, including in Africa and the assassination of the Swedish prime minister, Ola Palme, where several people that were in Dallas were also in Stockholm 23 years later. So it's the same players being used over and over again. But anyway, so we had uh, uh, 
Wolczyczbinski on that side. So we go back on the other side, up near the grassy knoll. Uh, when you get closer there, it's, it's hard to explain, but there are different like white walls and uh, weird white concrete constructions around this uh, Dili Plaza. Anyway, the next shooter, there's a car that was reversed out and there's one shooter with his elbow on, on the, uh, the roof of the, of the car standing shooting. You can see him on different uh, movies. He's right up there. Uh, following his name, Clyde Forshaw. He is the cousin of Walter Tobinski. Okay, and <clears throat> you can also see that car takes off right after the shooting. There's some still photos where, you, where the car is starting to move out. Uh, uh, Charles is, uh, no, Clyde is turning around and starts running towards, and then they take off very fast. The next one is the so-called badge man. He was dressed in a Dallas uh, tech, uh, Dallas uh, police uniform, black uniform, without the cap. He had a uh, Coca-Cola bottle in front of him. It's on the uh, corner of the wall. He was uh, leaning down almost uh, on his knees uh, with his rifle. His name was, um, uh, come on, what is with, up with my head? Uh, let me just see his name, Lucien Sarti. Lucien Sarti. Sorry about that. He was not part of Operation Forty. He was um, a hitman from the Marcel mob in France, and he was sent from France uh, to assist in this whole event as an asset uh, of uh, Carlos Marcello down from uh, down from New Orleans, who had uh, uh, people in France and the Marseille mob as his part. He was part of many, many assassinations as well. Very, very uh, brutal, careless. He, he was very daring. He did incredible stuff. That's the shooter, the so-called badgeman. Then you get go up. So up on the grassy knoll, you had Clyde Forshaw by the car. You had <coughs> um, Lucien Sarti, who is uh, down by the wall. And then we have the shooter uh, from the behind the picket fence. His name, James Files. He was uh, from the Chicago mob. He was a former uh, young police, uh, no, sorry, military guy who was recruited in, in Southeast Asia by the CIA, by uh, David Atlee Phillips, the same handler as uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He was under the same, they had the same handler. And he was the driver for Chucky Nicoletti, who was the shooter in the Deltex building. He had been asked that very same morning because the, one of the other shooters has backed out if he would do, um, do the job. And he said he had no problem doing that at all. I've been in direct contact with him, uh, which is a very strange feeling, I must say. But anyway, he said for him, it was just like taking out the garbage. He had no feelings for Kennedy at all, whatever. He was using a Remington fireball uh, it's, a, it's a specially built, it's like a rifle, but with a, a revolver grip, very short rifle. So you can use it with one hand. And uh, this day he, had, he was using special ammunition that was prepared by a guy called Wolfman in Chicago. He was the guy that uh, supplied the Chicago mob with special weapons. And what he had done was he had uh, drilled the top of the bullets uh, filled them with mercury and then wax. 
so that this is why the when when you use that type of uh, bullets it's more than dumb dumb it's like the whole thing just explodes uh, when the impact occurs and this is why we also see this incredible damage to the head of of uh, jfk also dealey plaza is very very small it looks really big when you see it on on a camera or TV or whatever, it's not, it's a tiny little place. It's a tiny little place. So anyway, there was also, when, when the shots started being fired, instead of what would be normal, uh, that the, the whole car came to, a to you know, took off as soon as the first shot was fired, here we had the exact opposite reaction. Bill Greer, the driver, uh just just uh, stepped stepped on the brakes and the car just stopped almost so that everybody could zoom in and then once the final shots were fired boom and he saw the head of the of kennedy just went into smithereens that's when he took off which is the exact opposite behavior of what should have occurred which is standard for this day but so when the when he stopped the car you will see that there are all of these rifles being aimed at the same target. And I think one of the reasons why Kennedy's whole head explodes is because there are multiple shots being fired right there. So James Files said that uh, right before he fired the final headshot from behind the picket fence, Chucky, Nicol Chucky Nicoletti hit uh, Kennedy from the back of his head uh, from behind and in the back of his head. So the Kennedy's head started moving forward. And that's why Files, who was aiming at the right eye of Kennedy, missed and hit him in the template instead. But there was another shooter down in the storm drain, uh, right underneath the picket fence, uh, down the uh, underneath the grassy knoll, where the angle, you can see when, when uh, there's been a lot of... Uh, examinations of Kennedy's skull and head and you can see that there's a, an angle that doesn't match up except if a shot was fired from that angle as well and that who was the shooter down there I'm not sure but uh, Frank Sturgis or Frank Fiorini also Operation 40 was in Dealey Plaza that day and was bragging about him being part of killing it there were more shooters that I haven't been able to identify but another one of them Roscoe White, who was a Dallas police officer and a former, he had been close to, to Lee Harvey Oswald during his military career and so for many years, he uh, claimed before he died that he was one of the shooters. And he said he was behind the picket fence. But there was an identical fence on the other side of Dealey Plaza. And I think that is where he was standing because people heard shots from over there as well. So I think he was on... Uh, the opposite side of Dealey Plaza and was shooting from there. So that is in a bigger sense uh, um, what actually went down that day. Wow. So multiple, I mean, yeah, because there's various documentaries that show the same video footage. Um, and then there's a conspiracy theory of the driver or someone in the t in the front turning around and shooting a car shooting yeah but for sure no it's bill greer and you can see it looks very much like that and it's possible that he did that as well because his whole behavior was the exact he his behavior was part of the hit team because he stopped the car he did 
everything that he shouldn't do. So how is that possible? But and also you can see he turns around and it looks like he's aiming something at the head of Kennedy. And then yeah. boom, the headshot happens. And then he turns around and takes off. And according to some people, he had a gun with some special shellfish uh, poison, some kind of really poisonous stuff. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that also occurred because it looks very much so, but he was not the only shooter. And how, why did he behave like that? Because he was, the people in that limo was in a very dangerous situation. I mean, there were bullets coming from all different directions on a moving target. So how, and I would say possibly this, the, these secret service guys in that car were under mind control. That's, that's the only explanation I can come up with because otherwise they could so easily be killed as well. Would his wife have known? Uh, Jacqueline? Yeah. No, 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 no. And if, I mean, that is like pulling your, putting yourself, it, it's like, it, that would be absolute suicide. John Connolly was hit, uh, you know, right in, right uh, in front of him. Anybody could have been killed that day in that limo. I mean, bullets were coming from everywhere. So it's like for her people to say, well, she knew she was just sitting there waiting. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And can you imagine can the, the horror of your loved one and suddenly that this individual's head just explodes and you're covered in, in brain tissue and blood. And I mean, my God. And could she have covered this up? Could she have? No, no, no. Could the driver have? Been, no, no, no. It is a massive, massive operation. And the real operation starts actually at the moment when Kennedy dies. That's when you can see what is actually going down, because that is when everything is turned around, where the whole uh, Vietnam War was started. The papers were signed by Lynn Lyon, Lyndon, Bain, Bain Stone. Oh, Lyndon Johnson signed the war that started before Kennedy's body was even cold, you know, and then you see the whole lineup of future presidents where that was involved. Richard Nixon was in Dallas the day he was out in Clint Murchison's ranch together with J. Edgar Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, many other people the, the night before. They were also staying at the Cabana Hotel, Doris Day's hotel. The whole shebang was there. You had um, Gerald Ford, who later became another president, who he was in the, in the Warren Commission, covering the whole thing up, covering the whole thing up. You had uh, uh, George Bush as the paymaster of that uh, hit team. Who else have we got? Um, you had uh, George Bush Jr., boy George, was in Dallas that day as well as a, as a teen, young teenager. Sometimes it looks like they 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 have their kids watch, you know, blood sacrifice so that they get sort of into that whole shebang. So there are multiple future presidents that build their whole career on that day with their hands dipped in blood. And, and Richard Nixon was freaking out over the years of him being uncovered as part of this whole thing. That's when he was talking about the Cuba thing, the Cuban thing and so on. We have to stop that in all of these Watergate tapes. No, he was talking about the JFK assassination. We have to make sure that no one finds out what really happened that day. 
You will so, also see the, the Watergate burglars were also, they were connected to Operation 40. And their task was to get this whole thing scandal. They, they tried to set up a scandal that would take down Richard Nixon, which they did. The whole Watergate burglary, the official story is just not true. It was, to, it was a coup to get rid of Richard Nixon. And the guy behind them was George Bush Sr. The guy behind the, the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt was George Bush Sr. also. I've been interviewing people uh, like um, Barbara Honecker, some, who was uh, working very close to Reagan, who was also close to George Bush at the time. Everybody knew Bush is behind it. So this Bush guy, I mean, also with 9-11, so many other things, the Bush senior guy right in the center of these operations. Would, would there have been any precursors um, like JFK, you know, like Diana knew, you know, that, that they were planning something to take mm -hmm. her out? Or would JFK have known this? Um, that, is, that is what shows his courage because the day that he said, I'm going to crush the CIA into a thousand pieces, he signed his own death certificate. I mean, he knew it. He knew that he was a targeted guy. When okay. Robert Kennedy started chasing the mob, he knew that the, the cross uh, hairs were on him. You know, th this is a perfect way of getting yourself killed if you go for these guys. And still they did it. This is why you have to admire individuals like that. Like Robert Kennedy, I think he had eight kids and still, still had the courage to do things like that. And, and now we have his son, Robert uh, Kennedy Jr., who's doing also very courageous stuff, you know. Yeah. What, when you mentioned um, the relationship with the mob and JFK, what did, I mean, because there were obviously other Hollywood celebrities that were also, you know, I'm thinking Sinatra. What was the mob's relevance place? I mean, what was that relationship like? Um, and, you know, we keep thinking about mob, like what we see on the Sopranos. Was that how it worked or are we talking you know different um areas of you know laundering I mean, what what was that relationship between those guys i'm not sure if uh, jfk was aware of what his dad was doing when it came to the election fraud i don't know if he did that but i know that once he was in the white house he was being reminded saying you owe us you know open the door to the white house we want to come in. That was what the mob was saying. And he closed the door instead. He was close to Frank Sinatra, the whole Rat Pack, the whole Marilyn Monroe, also Giancana, where they were close, not meeting each other, but they were like, uh, they had the people uh, that were moved things between them. On what level? I think that JFK wanted to clear ties with them that he he didn't want to have anything to do with them at the same time he he was in this uh, spider web that he couldn't get out of and so i don't know i was not there so i don't know i think it's a complex situation but okay. also where where marilyn was being used by the mob to get to kennedy as well and to try and control him and many he she was being used in many different ways also with international uh, leaders and presidents and stuff like that. She was like a sex toy 
it's quite a tragic thing when you when you study the history of Marilyn and also the way she ended. Yeah, I asked you about it last time. I'm fascinated by her story. I've seen her with various badges, you know, it, I mean, I'm not sure if these are legitimate identifications, but was she a, a government agent on top of her acting career? Um, and the other, I, I guess, answer, yeah, was she? And I can, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. These things, are, it's also really easy to fake these type of things afterwards with badges and stuff. Normally there are no badges, you know, because if you're into secret stuff like that, but <clears throat> you have to ask yourself, could she be trusted? No. I mean, this was a person who was not good at keeping secrets, who was not uh, like that. So I find it very hard to believe that she would be in that whole thing but would she be used that's a whole different thing yes 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 yeah. and yes also you had the the lookout mountain uh, ca uh, station up in laurel canyon <clears throat> just outside hollywood where the whole sex drugs and rock and roll and uh, flower power all of it was started from a small little village up there in Laurel Canyon. And in the middle of that was the so-called Lookout Mountain, uh, former uh, American Air Force base, but it was a CIA base. And in that place, they had the biggest uh, movie production. They, they, the movie production that came out from that point, that place was bigger than the whole of Hollywood in total. At least that's what we're being told now. And many of the actors like John Wayne, John Ford, uh, uh, who else was there? Uh, many of the these actors were also up there doing stuff, film stuff. And there's rumors saying that Marilyn was uh, was uh, part of that crew as well. I don't know. There's, it's hard to know with all of these rumors. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I ask about the relationship with the mob, you know, because of your comment earlier of the intertwined kind of <laughs> you know very overlapping of the mob with the CIA um, you know and then just looking back at how history uh, you know with the start of Hollywood and where it might have been you know in the mid-60s and how these kind of three you know the mob the government all Hollywood how they all interoperate so it is interesting to hear um, your side or your what you know of this it when you look at the assassination of JFK after that that was a starting point of so many different things I would say because this power structure that had been in the background trying to get into a real power position they took a major step forward when JFK was taken out there's like different uh, uh, what can I say, like turning points in history. The JFK assassination, that was one. The next major one was 9-11. <clears throat> the next major one was the corona. If you look at the power structure behind them, it's exactly the same. It's the same. That's why it's so important to identify these individuals, these families, these forces, so that we can see what the hell are they up to now. And also, 
why or why or why are things kept secret from us to this very day 50 60 years later if this was the job of of the mafia why wouldn't they just let all of this out saying well it was carlos marcello uh, he was the one who was behind it or fidel castro he was the one who did it bring it all out in the open let's see everything why is it kept secret because they were the ones who did it and why do they keep postponing it like another 70 years? It's because then they will be dead by then. So their asses is safe. That, that is it. You know? So this whole thing with uh, anyone who's waiting for the real truth to come forward in the, in the form of documents, really, do you, don't, do you think that the, the real truths have been hidden to a massive extent, never written down on paper, which is the way these operations should be carried out. You know, no paper trail, that's, that's basic. And here we have like 60 years later, thousands and thousands of documents still being kept uh, secret. And then people like Donald Trump, I know nothing about the guy, except that he's got a strange hairstyle. But otherwise than that, I've never listened to him because I fi find him a very confusing individuals very hard to know who, whose game he's playing in my world and anyway so he comes in and says we're not going to release this why don't you release all of it if you're going to drain the swamp as you say release all of it in one go no it's a few thousand here and the next in 30 years or 70 years or 100 years or 200 years what is all of that about <laughs> do you think there's any chance at all that he could have survived or that was a clone or a body double on that day jfk yeah i hear these stories but i mean absolutely not in my the way i see it absolutely not i've never ever found any tracks of that i i have seen these people that comes up with oh look at the ears of him it looks identical to the ears of jimmy stewart and, uh, and abraham lincoln and whatever it's like I, I can only say that I'm pretty good at spotting these things and that these things doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Also, you have to see what happened. How were people reacting? How did they, you know, like uh, JFK was taken out and a massive, massive operation in so many different areas started that wouldn't have happened had he still been around. And also Robert Kennedy was totally knocked out for years. He was in deep depression and stuff like that before in 68, when he started gaining power again and started taking a deep breath and saying, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I mean, I'm going to go for it. And then they took him out and Martin Luther King that they had, that if I'm correct, uh, was planned as uh, next vice president under Robert Kennedy. I mean, can, can you imagine the, what the world would have looked like had Robert Kennedy become president with Martin Luther King as vice president and these people were left alone to do what they were supposed to do? We wouldn't have, the world would have looked completely different. Vietnam War out the window, Iran contrast, 9-11. Uh, I mean, so many different, so many wars, uh, both the Iraq wars, the Syrian, the Libya, the Afghani wars, the NATO operations, none of that would have happened. Sure. So, so it's like these people, we should really look into how, what, why they sacrificed their lives. They knew the price and they still did it. So this, this is why I really, I've been trying to do a lot of 
uh, uncovering, and I put myself at harm's ways as well many times in trying to find out what happened as part of a healing process of understanding what actually went down, also to give some kind of uh, comfort, I hope, to the Kennedy and the King family, because these families have been suffering immensely. Now, very few people know that, like the King family, it was not only Martin Luther King, it was his brother as well, AD, and it, it was his grandmother was shot. And it was like, these, they've been tormented, these families, the Kennedy families, it's just like unbelievable, the amount of, of violent deaths and suicide and accidents. And I don't know, what yeah. that they have suffered from. Yeah, when, okay, so let's, when JFK uh, went into office, was there a different trajectory? And then then did it go south where he starts, you know, to, you know, what really brought on that I'm going to take down the CIA, you know, I think and where it, was, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis, as far as I understand, that was the turning point. That okay. was the turning point when he when he saw that, oh, my God, this I could have been the one that blew this world up, you know, and and the mindset behind the people that were just screaming at me, do it, do it, do it. And I'm in front of the whole thing. I am the one that have the power to go in either direction. And I choose to do good. And that was a turning point where suddenly from instead of being this glitter and glamour type guy, he just like took a stand, a real stand, knowing that he put himself on the line, but he was going to do it anyway. So yeah kudos to this individual i mean that i applaud things like that it's amazing was he meant to do something else and he failed that mission i mean was 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 their plan really to kick off these missiles i'm not really sure i understand the question i mean the military industrial complex there the the whole agenda of who's pushing this world their agenda is death and destruction. That's the name of the game and, and make billions of it. So however they're going to do that, I mean, first they blow a country totally to smithereens because of whatever minerals, oils, uh, whatever is there, strategic positions uh, has nothing to do with the official freedom and, and democracy. First, they bomb the living crap out of that uh, innocent country taxpayers are paying for every single bomb that is being dropped that's why they drop them in the thousands because the the money goes into lockheed martin bell helicopters it goes that way it doesn't the money doesn't disappear in saigon or something no it goes straight into the pockets of these people okay so first you bomb the living shit out of it then you send in peace negotiators that are there to sign building contracts for Halliburton and these type of companies that are then building up the whole shebang again. And then you leave a nice little American Air Force base or American bases all over the place to control the whole region. So it's like just another day at the office. They've done it in, I mean, I don't how many American military bases are there around the world if these had been chinese people would have been seriously worried but now it's the u.s there to protect us i don't think so it is the bastions of this very lethal force that is behind so much dark stuff in the world that are just putting their marker there 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 they can bugger off if you ask me right <laughs> yeah 
I, I guess, you know, with, with uh, Kennedy, you know, being sent in to, I mean, kick off this war and then somehow it kind of, you know, some, what did he not, was he not up to their standard or was that a death wish for him and to which, I mean, I'm just trying to understand more about the layers of complexity here with where they wanted to target JFK specifically and what made this man's death such a turning point, you know, because then you have LBJ in there and they seem to get all these, like you were saying, they were already planning the next steps. Um, so well, how did JFK really get under their skin? <laughs> what did he do exactly? But It was what I said before, he, he was in there, as long as he was not doing anything against them, it was great. You know, when they had uh, Marilyn Monroe, happy birthday to you, and the whole Hollywood and the, I mean, everything was beautiful. Everything was, we're going to make a change. We're going to, and in the background, the whole military industrial complex could just move on as business as normal, getting into position, planning on starting the Vietnam War and so on. All of these things were on the move while people were looking the other way. Then came the missile Cuban missile Cuban Missile Crisis, and suddenly he turned around against them. That was when the problem started. This is what you see many times when people are taken out. It's when something happens, they turn around, they turn around, and sometimes start working against the people that used to be the overlords before, and turn on them and just say, no, enough is enough. And so here, this is what we see. It's like almost like two different people. Kennedy before that incident and afterwards. And that's when the problem starts. And it was like, so once he was taken out, I mean, part of the assassination was Lyndon Johnson. He was very, very involved, very aware of it. He was also just about to be taken to court and be tried for eight cases of as murder, including on his sister. He was going down. Had he not, had Kennedy not died, Lyndon would have gone to jail for a long, long time. J. Edgar Hoover would never have been reelected. JFK hated him. Now he was elected on life, for life. You know, these people moved in. Many of the people in the background, Richard Nixon became president because of this. Gerald Ford became president because of this. George Bush Sr. got into this position where he could work in the backgrounds as a deputy director for the CIA in the background moving around and then boom he took over after uh, Reagan when he had got rid of all of the other one on the way so but what happened was there was a reason why he was taken out the way he was and that reason they sent a message globally what they were saying you know they could have slipped a pill in JFK's coffee any day of the of the year not a problem heart attack boom JFK died oh isn't it sad game over thank you so much but what they were doing they were by killing him right out in the open broad daylight in front of lots of people what they were send, saying was they were sending out this message all over the world saying we can take out anyone anytime anywhere so you better back off stay in line and shut up that was the message that was sent out there and if after the jfk assassination there was this wave of silence wave of silence nobody was looking into anything it was the official story the official story except for people like myself who stepped forward and said this doesn't make any sense how the hell 
how can three shots cover all of these uh, bullet wounds and injuries and all that? How can that, how can that, how can, it doesn't make any sense. And that's when they came up with weaponizing the word conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorists. That's a CIA operation from 64 to 67 to uh, sort of dis, uh, how say I'll say, add disbelief to any serious investigator who's trying to find out the real truth. So because as soon as you add the word theory or theorist, you have you add a, a doubt, and then you can ridicule this individual, add some tinfoil hat stuff, and just, uh, oh, it's just a theory. We're not talking about theories. We're talking about the truth. What is the truth? That is it. You're right. Um, and the people that came as a result of preserving this narrative, the history, so those in the documentaries, um, one I just watched recently where Gene Boone of the Sheriff's Department found the rifle that Oswald would have used. I mean, are these actors? Are they? No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. But the thing is, there were three different rifles found. He found <laughs> one of them. One was a Mauser. One was a Malika Kakano. I mean, the, the one that they, they say that Oswald uh, shot with couldn't even hit a barn. I mean, the scope was not uh, accurate. It, this was a ridiculous weapon. They, it had a rumor of being more dangerous to the shooter than to whoever was in front of it. It was a crap gun, crap, crap, crap. So <clears throat> that whole gun, but there was one gun found up on top of the building. There was one, two inside the building. And so this guy, Steve Boone, he found a rifle. He has no idea who, who put it there. What did it do here? But it was a Mauser nine millimeter, not the one that was later put, put out like this is the one. So more or less no one involved in that whole thing knew the bigger picture. And it's done by design. It is like that by design. Even James Files, the guy behind the picket fence who fired the final headshot, he has no idea who was behind this operation who was paying for it, why he was just doing his job. Don't ask any questions. When you're in this area, I've, I've spoken to multiple assass former assassins and people in special ops and so on. They know, do not ask questions. Just do whatever you're told. Target, blue shirt, coming in, 904, hit. Green light, green light, shoot, boom, get out. That's it. Who was the guy in the blue shirt? No idea. Why did we kill him? No idea. Did I do my job? Yes. Did I get paid? Yes. That's it. Don't ask questions. The more questions you ask, the bigger the chance you get taken out because you know too much. So it's, it's compartmentalized into the smallest little detail, meaning also that very few people can become whistleblowers and say, this is what actually happened because they, did, they don't know. They didn't know. You had people like E. Howard Hunt, my friend's uh, St. John's father, who was one of the architects of parts of the assassination. He was in charge of some of the, of the hit team. He, on his deathbed, uh, exposed some of the names involved in this, what they called a the big event. He didn't even know the bigger picture. He didn't even know all of the different aspects of the whole thing. And that's by design. But I want to go back to what happened after JFK died. Because it's like we had the whole Vietnam War started. Then you had 
the whole civil war situation almost starting to boil up in the US with civil rights and this whole shebang on top of people standing up against the Vietnam War, <coughs> refusing to go there, refusing to fight, uh, demonstrating. The whole mid-60s was absolute chaos, so they needed a massive diversion. They needed people especially the younger generation, to focus on something else. Look over there, look over there, don't, don't look here. And so what was started was the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was one of the things. There's quite a few uh, researchers now that are pointing to the possibility that the Beatles, I'm very sorry if you are a Beatles fan, I was, and it, it now, there's a lot that has come forward that uh, shows that it was actually, a, this band was a constructed band, like not the world, the official toll we've been told, but a product of the Tavistock Institute, and that the whole thing was organized by completely different forces. And one of the reasons that they were, uh, that they came forward at that very uh, time was a diversion away from the Kennedy assassination that took place end of November and 63 and just a month or two later boom she loves you yeah yeah in 64 the whole world was turned towards these four people when you look at them they had these revolutionary haircuts that was so shocking they say when you look at them my god what is up with these hair, haircuts nothing but the whole, I know this sounds way out there, but once you start really looking into this whole area around the music thing, it's a different story. But also <clears throat> after that, you have what was called the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll that started in the mid 60s when the civil uh, unrest, all of these things were really starting to boom in the US. Suddenly you had the introduction of many of these rock bands that came from this tiny little place, all of them were being pulled into this tiny little place north of Hollywood called Laurel Canyon, with a CIA base right in the middle of it with Frank Zappa, where many of these bands that have later become world, that became world famous, world famous, many of them couldn't even play. Many, they had no instruments. They just came to this little place and suddenly these bands were formed. <clears throat> and more or less all of them had their parents involved in the military industrial complex. They had grown up on army bases, Navy bases. Uh, several of them were, uh, had parents that were connected into different MKUltra uh, experiment uh, groups and so on, where it's, there's, uh, there's um, a lot of this uh, written in different books like um, the dark, I think the dark secrets of Laura Canyon. Um, David McGowan is one of them, who's just showing that so many of these bands that we thought were naturally created were not. They came to this little place, they were being pulled together, and that then uh, equipped with, uh, with musical equipment, with uh, um, music contracts, with CBS uh, record deals, all of these back with these, and then boom, out to change the world. At the same time, also, we had these big music festivals, Monterey, Woodstock, <clears throat> where thousands and thousands and thousands of LSD trips were being handed out for free by the CIA, 
Timothy McLeary, these type of was given out for free, for free. Why would they do things like that? But this was what started the whole psychedelical uh, revolution and then the hippie movement at the same time. So the hippie movement, where did that start? It started in Laura Canyon, exactly the same place. We're talking about a tiny, tiny little town. It's a really, really small place where all of this happened, all of this happened that then affected the whole world so that you got the, the attention diverted away from the Vietnam War, away from politics, away from this. And instead, people got totally into drugs, sex, drugs, rock and roll. If you look at from 64, when the Beatles uh, stepped forward, till 69, that's five years, where in 64, people were shocked about their haircut. And in 69, you had LSD make, Babies Not War, the whole LSD trip, hippie movement in five years. It's unbelievable what happened during these years. And, and it was in the end of that in 68, when Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were standing up and saying, we need to, turn, to use this momentum now and turn it against the war, stop the wars and make this a loving place for us to live in. We have the opportunity now when this is, if we turn it around and use these operations to our benefit, we can do it because now people are becoming very aware of love and all of these things. Let's use it. And with King, was he was aiming with a million man march, he was not only aiming for black people, it was like poor people, minorities, all of them, he was uniting. And so massive problem. And that's boom, boom, when they took these two out as well. And then after the 60s, everything just, people lost hope, people lost uh, any kind of dream, the whole thing just died. And, and instead, the disco movement, all of that, the brain dead, blah, 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 came in for many years where there was no real force, where these people could just move forward, 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 forward into bigger and bigger and higher and higher up power positions. And then the next major step was 9-11. Wow, it really does put things in perspective when you think about how the, the domino effects. So today, this fascination with JFK even conti you know, continues on. How do you think people, the sentiment has changed um, towards JFK? Do you think there's still that interest or do you find that most of the people just, okay, he, he was accept the narrative? I think there's been one movie made that is absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It's called JFK, Oliver Stone. That movie, I have not been able to find one single thing that is not true. The real truth, even bigger. But what he is showing with that movie is unbelievably accurate. Uh, it's the only movie I've ever seen based on a real story, whatever they call them, that is accurate. So that is a masterpiece, masterpiece. If you want to understand what's going on, watch that movie. Also, <clears throat> when uh, in that movie, he's uh, uh, Garrison, <clears throat> the DA is going to Washington. He's meeting up with a guy called Mr. X. His real name was Fletcher Prouty. He is a guy that I've learned so much from uh, when it comes to these type of operations. When he sits down, 
down in front of the White House, and he's describing what was actually going on, the reason for the JFK assassination. That is the real truth. Look, watch that, unbelievably accurate. And then you see the magnitude, the magnitude behind this operation, why he was taken out. And then he asked, who benefits? Who could do this? Who could that? And they're sitting on a park bench and he's asking these questions, who, who, who? And then it just comes to a uh, like a few seconds where nothing is happening. It's absolutely silent. But what they're showing is the obelisk in Washington. That is the power. So who, who, who? And he shows the, the real answer to that question. The obelisk, the whole Freemasonic Illuminati background. Who is behind it? Boom, there you go. And then on, down on the street level, we have all of these um, masses of details that looks confusing. But that is the power that was behind it. Evil, pure evil. That is it. And it's crazy because we're always taught, I mean, at least growing up, you know, how the 60s were this revolutionary decade where you know, things changed in so many levels and, you know, make love, not war. And I mean, I've never really been into any, like the, you know, the, I was never a Beatles fan. I was never into the monkeys. I could care less about Woodstock, but there were a lot of people, especially, you know, family that I was raised with um, that love these things. And it became such a hallmark of freedom and independence. And when you really look at you know take that bigger wider lens as we've been discussing the last two hours you can really see how these political events you know definitely not ha you know happen you know just randomly but they they coincide they kind of feed into each other you know the civil rights movement i can see as well and you know the whole hippie movement um <laughs> And, you know, yeah, the drugs, I mean, again, I was not into that, but a lot of people, you know, and then you have your parents that tell you these stories, you know, the festivals and things. And I mean, the story they would have known as children growing up about JFK, you know, it, do you think that most adults have a harder time accepting this or do you think they get it more than the younger generation? I think it's a really sad uh, experience when you start seeing that, oh my God, I thought this, and then it turns out that this was actually going on. But in the background, you got the darker forces, but all, there's so many good things that has happened among us, you know, in the 60s with the hippie movements, with friendships and friendships and bonding and understanding and flower power and people going against war you know make sure. love not war all of these things are beautiful it's right. only when you see in the background that somebody is pulling the strings that you were not aware of so it's not black and white it's not right. only dark it's not only like but i just feel it's super important to become aware of are we being manipulated or not because if we are why and in that case <clears throat> there's somebody benefits from us being diverted in a certain direction and Absolutely. the whole way that they open up the society for drugs that is still to this very day that has to open up this whole drug market where in the vietnam war they open up a whole market you know through marijuana through uh, lsd through all of these things 
that they could then supply to the, the transport chain from the Vietnam War when they were transporting drugs home, sometimes inside the bodies of your dead sons and, and daughters. I mean, it's so gross. It's so horrible when you think of it, that how these drugs came in there, but they created a market and then they became the supplier. And this is going on to this very day. People have just changed the choice of drug. You know, so now it's meth. I don't know, even know what it is nowadays. There's uh, all of these things that are just exploding. But you will see that every time, every time you got somebody like Richard Nixon or uh, the war on drugs, if you look in the background, who's actually behind it? When Bush and these people were standing up, the war on drugs, we had to fight. He was the supplier, the whole Iran contrast thing. George Bush Sr., key, and he had his underdog under him. Bill Clinton, that was, uh, that, was, that was why he was brought in, because he was this corrupt uh, governor in Arkansas, where there was a, a place called Mina, a small little place with an airstrip that could be used. That's why uh, Clinton was being brought in, because he and Hillary, Hitlery, uh, both CIA operatives on a very low level at that time, but involved in all kinds of crimes and, and fraud and estate uh, crap, I mean, unbelievable. That's when they were brought in because of the, the, his position as governor in, in Arkansas, where he, together with his uh, partner, Dan, what was his name? Um, Dan, sorry about that. I forgot that. But anyway, so Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton, drugs, drugs, drugs in the whole Iran-Contra scandal. Jeb Bush in Miami was part of this whole thing also. Uh, where at the same time they were officially fighting the war on drugs. No, they were supplying the whole U.S. deconstructing society by, amp by pushing in drugs, by pushing in weapons, by shutting down the financial support of police and so, so that they could get the crimes going up, up, up. Then they went in and they started also amping up the, the backing of uh, gangster rap, in the music business, the whole thing where, where uh, crimes were, were glorified, where many of this whole thing was glorified, so that also they could privatize the prison system that could be the prison industrial complex now, where they're making absolute fortunes of taking normal people that are being put in a difficult situation, they commit some kind of low-level crime, like parking the car in the wrong place or not paying your electrical bill or whatever, and they're put on death row almost. Why these heavy sentences for them? It's like a, having a hotel. Any person that is being sentenced in there, this person is paying every single day to pay to be there. It's like a hotel guest that is paying. So if you own the hotel, the prison hotel, big business, but who's paying it? Not the prisoner, tax money. So it's the tax going into their pocket at all times, and you're paying for them to benefit. It's an, a very, very ugly situation that they have built up. Wow. So last question, because I know we're, we're talking at a time, and then I want you to just tell us uh, your website and you know tell us a bit about your hard drives uh, again. Um, but as far as JFK Jr. and you know this kind of 
I don't know, <laughs> theory I, that he'll be coming back or he, he, you know, is faked his death and is still around to avenge his father's death. Do you think that there, this, he, he, do you think he knows all the layers of complication and intricacy? Um, you know, even would one argue that he knows the truth of, of all that's happened? Now we're talking theory because I don't know if he is alive or not. So I'm theorizing now. Uh, I would think that he has, uh, if he's alive, if there is this setup in the background that I kept him safe, they would also have access to a lot of in, uh, military intelligence and, and uh, intelligence on a very high level that could him supply that could supply him with a lot of this information but like i said this is so compartmentalized and also taken to the graves of so many people that were involved took the secrets with them because uh, that's just the way it is so the whole truth and nothing but the truth who who knows i mean we're still trying to figure it out i hope that i have been able to supply with some of it and I also, if he should be listening or whatever, I'm here at your service. I'm really, anything I can do to help this uh, heal, I'm here. So there's now there's Twitter accounts coming out, you know, like uh, JFK Jr. and uh, Diana stepping forward and stuff. I, I was hoping when I started seeing them pop up and then I started seeing that, no, here they, they are manipulated images again and there's a sure. whole different agenda going on again. So I don't know. I don't know. I hope, I hope, I hope that uh, he's okay and that he, it's good. It would be amazing if he and Diana, if they were around and if they could uh, step forward, because that could really open up the eyes of many people that have not been aware of this. Yeah. I mean, and one can't help but wonder if the constant hiding and shuffling under the rug and keeping classified and hush hush and all this is not kept deliberately for when you know either they release it or come back and announce it or you know one can only hope i guess <laughs> let us know if anybody listening <laughs> knows that plan yep no idea let's see one step at a time or one giant leap at a time i prefer so uh, yeah who knows oh. Listen, I appreciate so much your time tonight, and I know that you're very passionate about this. This is something you care a great deal. You have light on conspiracy, uh, conspiracies.com or conspiracy? Conspiracies.com. There's so much more than one going on, and uh, yeah. or damagard.com goes to the same website. And <clears throat> I've got, uh, I've been down this uh, rabbit hole for 40 years now. And so I've collected an incredible amount of evidence and documents and maps and photos and videos in the hundreds of the thousands. And I put it together in what I call my research vault, which I'm now um, giving um, the possibility for people to get their own copy. It's almost five terabyte of uh, perfectly organized uh, evidence in all of these cases much of it now being deleted from the internet while i mean while we're speaking it's unbelievable the censorship that is going on at the moment so i really feel an urgency to get it out to as many as possible so that uh, we can have these external hard drives hidden shared uh, and saved for generations to come so please go to my website lightonconspiracies.com 
and uh, there's a special offer that right now uh, with as soon as you come to the website i also want to say i've got my newsletter uh, in that newsletter i'm trying to point out all of the things the things the clues i find the operations that i find where i can predict what they're going to do i've stopped many of them up to today's date i've been predicting or connecting 68 of these operations on alleged mass shootings or alleged terror attacks up to two months before they happen on international radio. So my, my last name has actually become a verb, hashtag Damagard or hashtag Damagarding, is to find these hidden clues and stop um, upcoming attacks. So that is one of the main focuses. So in the this newsletter, <clears throat> you, you will see, I point out, this is when I said it, that's when it happened. This is when I said it. That's when it happened. This is when I said it. That's when it happened. And the reason why I want to share this is because so people can become more and more aware of how these operations are carried out, because that can make them become just as good as me to predict it and be part of stopping it. So a blessing in disguise. And also, if anyone would like to support my type of uh, what I'm devoting my life to, Donations are extremely appreciated because, um, well, I'm being, they try to shut me down in, in all different ways and forms. So financially, that is a tricky one. So I would be extremely appreciative uh, of any kind of donation. Well, thank you for that. And so everybody go down and check out the website, lightonconspiracies.com. Um, do you see anything happening now Speaking of watching trends and events, I know I said I wouldn't ask you any more, but just one more. Before these midterms coming up in November and the Nord Stream pipeline and a potential false flag and a financial collapse. I mean, the, the North the Stream, that was an <clears throat> absolute sabotage. It was carried out by <clears throat> a Task Force 68, a US task force with different... Um, military uh, entities involved also with the assistance from Denmark Sweden and Poland in stopping that pipeline <clears throat> the whole global operation that is on the way right now is to try and create absolute uh, horror for us for the winter in the form of uh, mm. no gas no food no no nothing and to try and get the global population down on our knees so that we will beg for food or heating and so that they will, in that position, can take over and, and take full control. That is what I see. It's a, not a very nice uh, picture. But this gas line is part of that. <clears throat> All the burning of the hundreds of food factories, the electricity prob problems, and so on. All of it is by design. It has nothing to do with Putin. All of these prices going up, uh, electric uh, prices or food prices. Everything is being pointed towards Putin has nothing to do with that. It is a global plan, Agenda 21, uh, or the fourth industrial revolution to push us into a position where we will just be down on our knees. So I say uh, the key in all of these operations is fear. They're trying to scare us into obedience. So the way out is to let go of fear. Uh, and this is... Uh, so whatever they throw at you, most of it will be through screens like the one you have in front of you. They, they're called smart 
many of them. It's a misspelling and the real spelling should be E-V-I-L is the correct spelling of these things. So the thing with fear is that it's only in the mind and it's only connected to the future. So it's absolutely, it's only when you think of it, speculation about something that might not even happen. So the whole fear thing is something that we really, really should work on an inner way of letting go through meditation, walks in the forest, music, whatever, that can help you let go more and more and more of it, so that the more freer you become, the more better and more conscious um, decisions about your future and your family's future you can do. So I would say, inform yourself as much as you can, question everything, and free yourself from fear, and then focus on a beautiful beautiful future for all of us put the emotions out there not fear emotion but put the focus and then with gratitude pull it in pull it in pull it in and start doing selfless service do whatever you can for everyone else including yourself but don't think i mean mine what can i do for us and then just go out do good be good and let's turn this whole thing around on that note, what a great way to end. Thank you. Thank you for that. Very And, and Jennifer, Jennifer, I would very much like to come back. Let's do another show on Martin Luther King as well, because he really deserves the attention. And uh, some of the people that were involved in that heinous crime is still around and have uh, thrived their whole life, their whole career on that death and uh, so this is a man I really would like to honor. So I would be happy to come back and do a Martin Luther King one as well. Okay. All right. We'll get it. We'll make it happen. I think a lot of people, I mean, there's such a fairy tale story taught to us in school about this and the, you know, the mysterious death and all that. So it would be great to hear your take on all of that. Listen, you are fascinating and we could talk for hours and there's just so much detail here. Um, but I think for everybody listening at home, this who, you know, has, has kind of ventured into this space, uh, you know, not really knowing all the ins and outs of this death. This is a, a great talk. Thank you so much for taking us through this kind of journey um, up into the death and really what the death meant and the you know, the following sequence of events. So, and you, and you just articulate it so well. So thank you. Uh, I know the channel will be very thrilled to hear, hear you come back and speak. So uh, I, I can't wait to get this out there and we'll schedule part three. Sounds excellent. Thank you so much. And Sampai uh, Jumpa, as they say in Bali. Oh, thank you. And everybody go check out lightonconspiracies.com. Take care and we'll talk again soon.